We require our students to learn to speak and use an academic register of English. And, and they need it for higher ed. Students are not successful in classes in higher ed unless they can write in what's called academic English. But if you dig into it a little bit, there's really no linguist who will tell you precisely what is academic English. Linguists will tell you all languages have equal standing. They're all complex ways of expressing human thought and interaction. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr. In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. For this podcast, we have two guests joining us. Deborah Palmer is a professor of equity bilingualism in the School of Education at the University of Colorado Boulder. She studies the construction of equitable educational opportunity for emergent bilingual children in schools. Joining her is Alexandra Federico. She's an instructor and graduate research assistant also at the University of Colorado Boulder. She also spent time teaching in New York, which brings an interesting perspective to her research. I think you're going to enjoy this fascinating discussion as we explore the research work that Deborah and Alexandra are teaming up on to gain more understanding of multicultural scholars and BIPOC students. I want to thank Deb and Alex so much for spending time with us today. Can you two just kind of start off with, give us a little bit of background of what you're working on at CU and, and how you got started doing that. Alex is only in their second year in the doctoral program, but came to us from New York City. And I'll let her tell her story, but I applied to this grant with the Center for Leadership basically for Alex to pursue her dream project and to support the Multicultural Leadership Scholars Program in the School of Ed as a starting place. Um, so that little project is what I would say is the leadership work I'm doing right now. I came out of thinking of leadership in terms of bilingual teachers and leadership in bilingual education or bilingual teacher leadership is kind of the phrase that I've been developing into. I have a book with that in its title. I think that's probably why the Center for Leadership reached out to me in the first place. Um, but their uh, support is going to allow us to dig into um, how we understand leadership for BIPOC students here on a predominantly white university campus um, and, and beyond. We, we, we talked about this before you got on that, you know, especially for, I think it, it's, it's even more pronounced for me. I'm a white male in the United States. I don't get it. I just don't get it. And so I, I'm very ignorant of that. And maybe we'll, we'll kind of get to that. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but I just think it, it's, it's almost ironic to, to look at the screen and see four white people here. Yep. So Alex, we haven't heard from you at all. Why don't you tell us a little more about this particular project? Um, yeah, so uh, like Deb said, I moved to Colorado um, from New York City two years ago, or almost two years ago at this point. Um, I'm a former high school teacher and advisor from the South Bronx. Um, I came to see you with a passion for thinking about ways that we can increase access and retention um, of underrepresented student populations, particularly bilingual learners in higher education. Um, thinking about that from both the high school side and from the, the college side, what's being done beforehand and what's being done to support those students. 
um, many of whom are also students of color, many of whom are also um, first generation college students, many who come from low income backgrounds. Um, so kind of navigating this intersection of, of identities that sometimes inhibits their ability to either access or persist in um, four-year institutions. Um, and this, this project was really born out of like Deb um, coming to me and saying, hey, I think this could be a good fit for us. And what's really interesting about it is coming from um, teaching and advising in the South Bronx, um, working with all students of color to being in this very, very white space um, and thinking about what it's like to be, or what it's like for students of color um, on this campus where they definitely feel underrepresented um, in space. And it's, it's new to me too, because although I am of that white majority that is CU, that is not my background. I've been in New York City for many years. And so it's kind of brought in a new line of thinking for me in this sense of, I've thought a lot about public universities and colleges in the tri-state area, uh, many that are, still predominantly white, but more diverse um, than, than CU is. And the Multicultural Leadership Scholars um, just seemed like a really fantastic place to kind of start by investigating how these young people are making sense of their roles here at CU, how they're coming into leadership and activist identities. And it's been really wonderful because I took a class with Joanna Mays, who is the director of the program um, last fall. And have just like really stayed in touch and had some great conversations with her since. So now that this like project is taking off, um, I'm really excited to see where this work will go. And she she is also a um, alumna of, of CU as an undergraduate student and is a first generation Latina woman um, who now runs this program. So she really has a long history here and um, she's been involved with the program for many years. So she's also seen it in its various formations from when it was like a living and learning community to what it is now. Um, so I'm really excited to take up this work. Let me also clarify, I'm pretty sure Multicultural Leadership Scholars is one of the projects under the Center for Leadership's umbrella. So there will be another opportunity to, a podcast opportunity to explore the program itself with Joanna and the other director, Krishna, who's on the board of the um, Center for Leadership, Krishna Hatisapu. And so we'll probably talk today a little less about that program because they're the ones who should be talking about that program. You know, they're the directors of it and more about like our own definitions of leadership and um, what brought us to doing this uh, research project about um, pathways into leadership for students of color here on Boulder campus. Deb and Alex, uh, I love that, that uh, you guys have this passion in this. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about uh, the research that you're doing together? Okay, yeah. So the Center for Leadership has funded us um, to get this project started. So we're really only the beginning of it, but we're planning to do a case study of one of the many uh, pathways programs that exist on this U Boulder campus to try to understand the ways that they nurture leadership among our um, BIPOC students here in this predominantly white institution. Uh, and leadership broadly stroked, like uh, leadership as activism and engagement in the community, not just here at CU Boulder, but beyond. And um, Alex is going to be our primary researcher. So Alex, why don't you go into a little more detail what you're planning to do? BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Um, so often interchangeably used with people of color. To kind of expand on what Deb was saying a little bit, um, so really talking about what they're doing with leadership identities at CU, but also the beyond part. Um, so in our study, we'll be looking at current students uh, in MLS, as well as recent alumni of the program, 
and how their time at CU and um, their involvement with the Multicultural Leadership Scholars uh, influenced their uh, post-graduation trajectories, whether that's um, into graduate school or into some a career of some sort. We'll have that end to look at from what they're doing after their graduation. Um, but then we'll also talk with current students from freshman to senior year um, and look at how that's helping them come into their leadership or activist identities while on the CU campus, which is a predominantly white space. So we're going to not just interview students and graduates, we're also going to be spending time in the multicultural leadership scholars spaces in their classrooms, virtual classrooms these days, um, and interviewing the leaders of the program, the the uh, directors and former directors who've, who've shaped this program into what it is. I guess our goal is larger than just understanding multicultural leadership scholars, although nobody has actually done a full evaluative exploration of this program. And it's a pretty remarkable program. So we're excited about that piece, but we're hoping we got broader vision for this. We're really hoping that it, it takes us into a bigger space where we can start to define and understand what um, kinds of supports and what kinds of um, well, I guess resources are necessary to get a, a larger presence of um, BIPOC students on the CU Boulder and other um, predominantly white campuses like it to uh, try to build leadership uh, from the bottom up and what kinds of programs need to exist, what kinds of programs do already exist and what does the university and what do universities need to do to start seeing a more diverse campus and to start seeing an authentic actual set of um, supports and educative um, opportunities for uh, all students. Then let me ask you, what if we don't do this? Why is this important? I mean, what, what, what happens if we just don't do any of this work? I can dig into it a little bit, just very surface level, but um, in doing some some very basic level research in terms of the, the past 10 years of history, of the, of the enrollment history at CU, um, it's not that BIPOC students aren't applying, and it's not that they're not getting in. They are. Uh, but very few are choosing to enroll. Um, so with the recent commitments from yeah, university administration, one of the chancellor's um, goals was to increase diversity. Um, it, I think it's really important that we take on this work, take on this research to investigate what it is that is drawing students to CU and how we can increase this these types of supports and resources for students in order to make them feel more welcome here. Um, because like I said, uh, it was it, the enrollment is, is continues to be very low. Um, so while there seems to be this goal and this expectation from the administration, it doesn't seem like it's trickling down into how we can make that happen. Um, so this is one of those first steps at thinking about how we can try and make that happen. And so thinking actually, more broadly again, the entire schooling system uh, from pre-K through higher education is not constructed for students of color um, and for communities of color, for bilingual communities. It is a very white stream institution from the beginning to the end. And so but part of my larger agenda is to try to figure out ways to break down the kind of white stream, the mainstream white dominated structures that impede students from success at all levels. Um, and I think that um, leadership is a construct that's actually really helpful for that in terms of not just supporting students to embrace leadership and activist identities to try to make these changes from the bottom up, but also teachers and leaders who support teachers within the systems, educators are sort of like a key uh, to, to kind of, they're the ones who implement any policy that we set in place. 
So they're the key to figuring out um, how to make those spaces and how to make those policies more just, more equitable, more open. Well, I really want to dig into to that term you use, white stream. You know, I've I've heard of things like uh, you know assessments that that are are biased for you know toward toward white people. Can you tell us some more about that? What what does that mean to be white stream, and why is the system? Well, maybe not so much why, but how is the system set up for for white people? Well, schooling was originally um, designed to support the industrial revolution in the United States, uh, so. It was designed with the current class structure in mind with a very rigid kind of let's prepare workers and let's prepare the overseers of those workers in two separate kinds of spaces. So it's been a segregated system for its entire period of existence in the United States. Um, now, of course, in recent history, we've had numerous reform efforts to try to push um, past that, to push back on that. Uh, most recently, we've seen um, reforms in the in the form of standards where there's this effort made to um, set the same standards for all schools and, and support schools to bring all students up to the same educational academic standards. In a sense though, that's just another reiteration of the same mainstream dominant um, ideology because those standards are written with mainstream society in mind with this uh, one single cultural lens to understand what is academic success and what is um, what does it look like for a student to make it in the in the current structure? These standards are written with the current structure in mind. A really good, vivid example is language, which is what I study. And in the field of bilingual ed, um, we tend to think of um, sort of a, a standard mainstream English uh, as a, as a thing <laughs> and as a as a thing in. Um, in academic spaces that's required. So we, we require our students to learn to speak and use an academic register of English. It's a learning academic English is a common phrase in teacher preparation and, and in classrooms and schools, you know, K-12. Um, and, and they need it for higher ed. Students are not successful in classes in higher ed unless they can write in what's called academic English. Um, but if you dig into it a little bit, there's really no linguist who will tell you precisely what is academic English. Linguists will tell you all languages have equal standing. They're all complex ways of expressing human thought and interaction. Um, and that we need to break open the construct of academic or standard English because they don't really exist. So what that, you know, what that leaves us with in, in higher ed is a confusing picture because at the same time that we're telling everybody standard English doesn't exist, linguists won't stand behind it. We're also still requiring them to write academic articles in graduate school in this academic English, uh, whatever it is, right? So, but, but that's a kind of um, a good illustration of how this white supremacist system of ideological um, structures kind of underlies almost everything we do. It underlies the way we talk to each other. It underlies the curriculum that's developed and the people who get to star in the history we tell it underlies the kinds of stories and the way those stories are told around um, schools, schooling, curriculum, and instruction. Um, breaking it down to allow more students of color, to allow more cultural linguistic diversity into the picture kind of requires a complete restructuring of the system. Revolution. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, one thing that sticks out to me, you know, I've traveled in Europe and I'm, I'm always amazed at you know, everybody speaks at least two languages in Europe. Uh, 
because that's part of their culture. That's not only part of their culture, but it's part of their education. But, but then when you go to the United States, you get, dare I say, a lot of resistance uh, for, for there's, there, there's a segment of the population that says, hey, we're in the United States and we speak English here. And it's, it's almost like um, an insult to, to say we're going to be bilingual. Maybe we're getting off topic a little bit here, but I'm curious to understand what you think about this. Should we be bilingual? And what do you say to the people that push back? In a lot of ways, we actually already are bilingual. The United States is multilingual. There are many languages and there always have been. If you look back at our history, we've had Native American languages, we've had African languages, we've had many European languages come onto the, the territory that is now considered the United States. It's been multilingual in its entire history. The story of how English became the hegemonic language of power in this country is, is a long one and not a clear one. We don't have a national official language in the country. Over 30 states have actually passed a national language official, I mean a state official language, official English, but the national language at the time that our country was founded wasn't clear. It wasn't necessarily going to be English. There were several other languages that had equal standing. However, these days it's very clear that English has this hegemonic role in our society and it's an interesting complicated picture because if you look at schools we do have bilingual programming we kind of always have it's gone back and forth based on world wars based on senses of our need to be a a nation one nation and this this idea that um sorry uniting a country around one language can help bring unity um, but then there's also this idea that plays around in our society that many languages can come together to create a stronger space. And we have both going on at once and they always seem to go back and forth. But there's no denying that even in a pluralistic multilingual ideology, some languages hold more power than others. And indigenous languages and African languages, languages that primarily people of color have spoken throughout history have lower status in US society, we kind of always have. We don't see as many bilingual programs in, um, in Native American languages. We don't see as many um, in languages from the global South. We see bilingual programs in Spanish, in French, in Chinese, which is becoming more and more um, spoken throughout the world. Uh, and language and power dynamics um, always play into what um, parents and communities want in their schools. They actually seem to have more power over what languages are chosen for bilingual programs than even the languages spoken in communities sometimes. You see Spanish in particular playing a really interesting role in the United States because it is both a colonial language having come to this continent as a colonial language and a subordinated language because the United States gained a tremendous amount of territory in the Southwest of this country um, about a century and a half ago uh, because of um, their dominance over Spanish-speaking territories of Mexico. So uh, it, is a both, it is in both places at once. And then again, it still plays an ambiguous role. This is making me want to ask you, Alex, a little bit about your background, because uh, before you came to the state of Colorado and then to be an instructor at CU, I think you said two years ago, uh, you were living in a completely polar opposite to Boulder place in the nation. You were in the South Bronx of New York City. What did you see being done there? You were a high school teacher, so you were still in education. What is going on right in that part of the nation that could be done better in this part of the nation? 
And I'm also just curious about what kind of culture shock that was like for you. So there's a lot to answer there, um, <laughs> right? So my experience, I was in the same high school um, during my whole teaching career. Um, so when I speak to my experience, I cannot say that what I taught and what my experience as a teacher uh, of, of multicultural students was like um, compared to, to other schools, um, because it really differs depending the environment that you were in. Um, that being said, in terms of how it differs from Colorado, um, Although the school that I taught in was predominantly um, Latinx students, um, so many were bilingual Spanish English, uh, a lot of the surrounding areas had higher African populations, big Haitian populations, um, a growing uh, Indian and Bangladeshi population. So there were very many languages being spoken. So uh, even in schools that have bilingual education programs, right? Uh, on one level, they're not happening a lot in, in secondary education. So they're not happening in middle and high schools. Um, and in New York City, you get a lot of newcomers of, of older students, um, which often made language a challenge. Um, but even when it is happening, it's sometimes being reserved for, or a portion of, of, of dual language programs are being reserved for uh, middle-class and upper-middle-class white students who are enrolling in those dual-language Chinese-English programs, who are enrolling in those dual-language um, French and English programs instead of serving the students that, um, that it needs to. So by no means is, is New York got a perfect system going on. Um, I think it is a work in progress everywhere and that there's a lot to be considered. That being said, I think that, um, I think that something that is going on there versus here is the, is the focus on multilingual populations and language support versus here, my experience in, and I can only speak to my two years and I have not taught in Colorado, um, but, and it makes sense because the large portion of bilingual learners here are, are Spanish speakers. Um, so within the system here, I see that focus of, of support, which is great, which is wonderful for those students, but I can't help but question, right? Sometimes when we're having these conversations, well, what about students who speak other languages? Even if they are a much smaller population of the Colorado um, student population, what's being done for them? Because we can say that, sure, this is the majority, but there still needs to be supports in places, resources in places to help those students succeed as well. How about your own um, adjustment to Colorado personally? It's been good and it's been strange um, at this point. So it hasn't even been two years. Uh, we've realized, I just, my partner and I were speaking the other day and we realized we've now been in um, like COVID Colorado as long as we've been out of COVID Colorado. So we have been here for a while, but we didn't really necessarily get to know Colorado super well. Um, that being said, I, I do think there's been somewhat of a culture shock to how much of a white space it is. For me, I, again, like I said, I make up part of that majority, but my partner is a person of color. So he, I think it's much more noticeable to him than it is to me on a regular basis. But at the same time, I think that there's really great work being done, being part of uh, COCABE, which is the Colorado Association for Bilingual Education last year, just attending that conference um, was really eye-opening. There's so many wonderful bilingual dual language teachers in the state doing like great work for their students having recently done some work with uh, family liaisons in the Adams 12 school district to um, support and advocate for their bilingual families. The fact that every single school in that district has that position uh, really opened my eyes because they were so dedicated. We did some professional development with them and they just, they're in it for, for their students and for those families. Um, even in this time of transitioning into remote learning, um, which has been a challenge for everybody, regardless, I think of, of language status, 
especially challenging for, for bilingual students and their families. So I've been really inspired by, by the support systems that are in place and how passionate the people that are working in this field are. Can I follow up? Because I actually have just started another small study similar um, to the one I'm carrying out with Alex, but focused on bilingual teachers in the COVID era. Um, because I think, you know, there has been a good amount of press attention to what teachers are going through and what things they're doing to rise to the challenge of teaching um, remotely and teaching in very um, different circumstances from normal and supporting kids and their families through such a tough time. Um, but there hasn't, I think, been enough attention to the particular challenges of bilingual teachers who have always had particular challenges in schools because they're um, always playing the role of bridge between families um, and schools being folks who can speak both languages and um, can relate to both communities, both cultures, uh, are often, they're playing this negotiator, this translator from um, homes to schools, from kids to their other educators and teachers at schools. And uh, so bilingual teachers end up with that extra load of work that comes from being the bridge. Um, and they, they've always had that. They've always had to uh, work extra hard to prepare curriculum that actually supports their kids to start with what they know and bring that to the language they're learning, the, the information they're learning in school. But now it's actually got another layer to it because so many um, bilingual families are um, at a low socioeconomic level and need support with basic resources, um, feeding their families, making sure they have a roof um, to live under and um, finding internet for their kids to engage in school. And the teachers have been um, rising to the challenge in some truly inspiring ways um, across the country that I'm seeing because I'm um, kind of in a network of scholars working with bilingual educators all over. So I've started this study to just interview teachers, to collect those stories, those testimonios to use the, the, the Spanish term. And it does have a different heftier meaning in, in Spanish. It's a, it's a research methodology, collecting stories of inspiration, stories of sobrevivencia or survival. Um, and so collecting all these stories, I'm really hoping we can um, further define, like what does leadership mean for bilingual educators in, uh, in this context? Are you writing a, a new book right now? This is just data collection. I am actually uh, trying to put together a book, but that's about some of the work that I did in Texas uh, in one small school. We, we had a research study that lasted for six years at this school, seven years, seven years with a number of different students doing different kinds of studies each year and colleagues. And we're putting it all together into one book to give a portrait of a school that's going through the gentrification experience that Alex was talking about, where it started off as a bilingual school in 2010 that served 95% Hispanic students. Um, it was a Title I school with a transitional bilingual program that only lasted until second or third grade. Um, and then they decided to embrace a dual language bilingual model, which means they were inviting English speaking students into their bilingual classrooms with the Spanish dominant immigrant students that were already there. Um, and so soon, very quickly actually, during those seven years that we were there, this school lost its Title I status and became approximately 30% Hispanic. Um, and so watching that transformation over the course of just a few years, we have, we have data that kind of digs into what, what uh, happened there and what that means for what schools should do to make sure that bilingual programs are still serving the bilingual kids who, who most need and deserve 
to uh, have their bilingual strengths supported at school. It's so fascinating to me. I mean, I never thought of these things. And I think that probably a lot of our listeners probably hadn't either. So to put a spotlight on it like that, to, you know, these challenges and these struggles that the bilingual educators are going through is pretty fascinating. Let's, if, if you don't mind, let me spin it back to you. You talked about your research and, and I'll tell you that when I, you know, I'm an instructor at, at the University of Colorado as well. And I, and I like to kind of informally ask my, my, especially my international students, how, how does it feel to be here on campus at the University of Colorado? Is, does it feel like a welcoming environment? And so I, I, I have this little informal poll that I do, but and I know you guys as good researchers are going to follow the data, right? And say, okay, what, what is it that is kind of, you know, why are we not seeing more diverse uh, students come to our campus? Is it I mean, do you guys have a feel for what that is? I mean, is it because it's not a welcoming environment? Is it something else? Well, I have a feeling we're in a place of change right now. I feel like the, uh, the university has begun to prioritize some of the changes that need to happen to make this campus a welcoming space um, for international students and for students of color and for students who are first generation. Um, for a long time, there's been language about that. There's been, dare I say, lip service to it. For example, we, we have um, that document that committee put together just a couple of years ago, laid out a set of steps that the university needs to go through. Like, what do we need to do on this campus and in this institution to make our campus more um, inclusive and, and uh, welcoming to all? Uh, and then the university sat on that for a year and a half or so until um, last summer's protests. And then in an effort to, to look a little bit deeper at what needs to happen, the, the chancellor opened that back up and said, oh, we're gonna implement this. And so we keep seeing now, we are still implementing this despite the pandemic, we are moving forward on initiatives that change our campus in substantive ways to make it a more welcoming space. Initiatives like bringing in more faculty of color, um, like in engaging faculty who are here in training and um, professional development to really understand what they need to do in their own classrooms, what we need to do in our own classrooms to ensure that all students are um, given equal access to our um, to the experience of, of higher education. Things like um, representation on our campus of visual arts, representation in terms of the lectures, the folks that are invited to give talks, the, the definitions we have of what counts for knowledge in, in higher education. So much of that has been um, very white dominated in the past and we are seeing shifting ever since last summer where the campus is starting to notice um, that race has been an issue here and that we need to, um, we need to actually take action. Alex, would, would you offer anything more to that? I haven't been at CU as long, so I'm still learning to kind of learning the landscape a little bit. But having been in the classroom this past semester, or at least virtually in the classroom um, with undergraduate students, I did have a few, several students of color, and not that there were many in the class, but uh, two, two who came to me after um, participating in the scholar strike, which was back in September, I think during which we talked a lot about how in these white spaces, oftentimes the responsibility or, or sometimes the burden of having these discussions um, about race and digging into these topics is often put on people of color 
to talk about their experiences and that we have to stop doing that and we have to start being able to step up. And just having two students come to me privately just in, in, in saying, thank you for saying that because I have been in other classes where my professor has asked, what is it like to be the only Latino student in the computer science class here? And it just kind of wowed me um, that that's happening. But I, but at the same time, I guess I shouldn't have been as shocked as I, as I was. I'm a very big believer in sharing stories and experiences, but I also recognize that that does not land on everyone um, the same way. And it's not fair to ask a certain population of students, right, to talk about their experiences to, to help white students understand how, how they, there are these differences. Um, so I think that the university is starting to take this up more. I mean, I've definitely seen in the past year alone, like there's a bunch of new faculty of color that came on in the School of Education, which is fantastic. One of which I'm taking a class with in the spring on critical race theory, which I'm super excited about. But also, so I think that faculty of color portion is really important, but also remembering that even as we start to see the demographics shift, that that doesn't mean that change is being made, right? That we still have to actively be talking about this and taking up this work. Um, that one diversity training is not enough to say that our faculty and our staff is skilled in, in doing this, right? And I, and I think that's been a little bit of something that I've seen, although again, we're in this strange COVID time, not that I'm making that an excuse, um, but it is harder to kind of see what's normally being done versus what has what is being done during this time. So I just think that we have to make sure when this work is happening, right, that it's not happening in isolation, that it's happening continuously, that it's being taken up in everything that we do from our planning to our syllabi, to our curriculum, to um, our faculty and staff meetings, it needs to be ingrained in every essence of our work. I'd love to hear both of your opinions on, and I know this is kind of a personal answer rather than a research-based uh, question, but what is your recommendation on how to start small for, let's just start with professors and instructors to open the space up in the classroom? Because you, you, know, you pointed out some areas where it's, it's done kind of wrong putting it on the person of color to kind of bring up how they feel, which, oh my gosh, that's, I can feel that when you're saying it. What is some advice on, because this is a difficult conversation. And when people enter into a difficult conversation, it is just natural human instinct to say, nope, not going there. So how do we go there and make it a little bit more comfortable? Um, what, is, what is some of your advice on what you wish you could see in uh, starting in the classrooms? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that um, the privilege to say, nope, not going there is something that white people have, right? So that conversation is always present in the lives and experiences of, of, of folks of color and it's it's not going away. So as, a, uh, as an instructor, I think the first responsibility we have is to remember that, to keep in mind that um, that conversation is happening, whether we're controlling it and supporting um, real in reflection with it or not. And then I would actually point uh, people to several resources we already have well elaborated on our campus, including the CU Engage Dialogues program and um, the Center for Inclusion and Social Change and the Odyssey uh, Office of Diversity, Equity um, and Community Engagement. They, they all have 
trainings going on all the time that support faculty in having challenging conversations in their classrooms and in navigating um, some of these issues to ensure that their students don't have to do it alone. So I think that's what I, what I would say. And I'm dropping links in the show notes for all of the centers that uh, Deb just mentioned. So check those out if you're listening and want to kind of dig into that a little more. Alex, I, I can tell you have a thought to this as well. Um, well, I would just say two things. I think one is to remember that this is like all a, a work in progress and that I don't think anyone's doing it perfectly. I don't think that there is a perfect way to do it. It is imperfect right? That's, that's what this is all grounded in. Always. Um, it is going to be uncomfortable, but right. It's important to sit in that discomfort and, and think about what that means. And for me outside of uh, my professional and academic worlds, um, I've been trying to take this up in my personal life as well. Um, right. No more this notion of I'm going to stay quiet to avoid a debate at the family dinner table, right? Like, we are all capable of unlearning what we have been taught. Um, no one is too old, right? I, I have these conversations with my parents and, and others who sometimes say, oh, well, you know, this is just how it was. This is how I learned something, right? We are always in, in states of learning and unlearning. And um, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I think we need to take this up in our professional and academic worlds just as much as we take it up in our, in our personal worlds. And to, to have those tough discussions um, with the people that we love who might disagree with us, I think in that way, it keeps it ongoing versus when I said in isolation before, sometimes, right, we step away from it. I think we have to constantly keep it going, thinking about what we're reading, what we're discussing, and when we're choosing to be silent, when perhaps we should not be um, in, in certain situations. Tara and I do another podcast and we talk about this idea of doing hard things and, and being uncomfortable, right? And, and uh, that all sounds great on paper, but what would you say to somebody that pushes back? Why should, why should I make myself uncomfortable? What is the, what is the why? You know, wh why should people go there? Because if you don't make yourself uncomfortable, then chances are someone else is uncomfortable in that situation already. And how is that causing problems? I mean, you know, some people might say it's not my problem if someone's uncomfortable, but what is the bigger picture of if we don't do anything and we stay with the status quo of where we're at because it's too uncomfortable to be uncomfortable, uh, what, it, what are we going to lose as a society, as a, as a nation, as in businesses, in universities, in discussions? What do we lose? Well, certainly point to the fact that CU Boulder loses um, the voices of students of color in its community very quickly. They don't stay, they don't come, they don't stay. That's a huge loss because uh, diversity of voices um, leads to uh, diversity of ideas and um, enriching uh, not just our university experience for all of our students, but enriching the world as the students move on into um, careers and lives that have the potential to actually make changes in the world uh, to create a world we'd all like to see. If we silence voices um, by not leaning into the discomfort of having conversations that allow for all to be present, we silence those voices into the future. We've made note that all four of us on this call are white. What gets you two up in the morning to work on this particular, in your, it, clearly you're working on it in your professional lives, in your off work times, in your personal lives? Why? What gets you up in the morning to do that? Well, it is all the, the teachers that I've 
had the privilege of working with who are doing this work as well, uh, and all the kids that they're working to support, all the students that I see in my classes who need this support to go on to change the world. Um, it's the possibilities of the future. I, education has always been that for me. And I think that's why I get up in the morning to see the future come to life. I would have to agree with that fully. Um, for me, I think it's it's always been my students, many of whom are, well, finishing up college now and um, are such fantastic young leaders. I think of them always. They, they're fantastic individuals and I reflect a lot of my own experiences in life um, and privilege and, 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 and everything that comes with that. And um, the students are the future. Um, they're the ones that are gonna change the world for the better. Um, and we have to make sure that every single student regardless of their background uh, has that, that opportunity. I would say I applaud you both for fighting the good fight. We need, we need more folks like you doing that. Let's wrap this up with our, our final question here. You know, we, we like to talk about what we, what we call the, the frontier of leadership. And so, so my question to both of you is as we move forward and whether it's, you know, post COVID or 2021 or even further out there, what does the frontier of leadership look like? What is it that you guys see coming that's going to be new and, and hopefully uh, a way of doing things better? So, you know, um, knowing that this is the, the sort of centerpiece of, of, of your uh, series, I've been thinking about this question. Um, frontiers, right? What are the possibilities of tomorrow? And actually, I think the possibilities of tomorrow are plentiful. We've been going through a really dark time. We're right in the middle of it still. We have a pandemic. Um, we have continued oppression against immigrant and refugee communities in our um, society. We have increasing challenges of climate change and its impact on people. And that's especially people in poverty and disproportionately people of color worldwide. It seems like we're reaching kind of a flexion point. It's a place where things are gonna break open um, and create a space for something new to be born those massive movements of racial justice that happened last summer after the murder of George Floyd and the vocal broad rejection of um, police brutality is sort of an um, emblem of that to me. They energized people. So many people became new leaders out of that experience and they're emerging every day more and more leaders. We've got young people, educators, actually kind of all over the place kind of entering into and taking on the struggle so to me, that's the future of leadership, advocacy, activism, working towards the change that um, we can all get behind, embracing diversity of voices in our society and leveraging networks of um, support among other leaders and embracing deep expertise as people move into fixing some of the problems that our society has been suffering. That's, that's tough to follow because I agree with everything that you just said. Um, but there are two things I will I will add, and one is is the first, and this is kind of going off of your previous question, and something that I said, you know, what what gets us up in the morning? There are plenty of people who are taking on this work every day who don't necessarily have that choice because it is their lived experiences, and just because we were talking about the fact that we're four white people talking about this right now, right? Like I want to honor all of those voices and all of those people, right? It is not just us, and they are doing that work every day, whether they're on a podcast or not, and so I just want to throw those props where they're very much overdue. 
And the other thing that I would say about leadership, about the frontier, the new frontier of leadership, I think um, this past year in general for everybody, right, um, since the pandemic has really shown how individualistic so many Americans are. And I think that's really unfortunate because I think that there is such an opportunity for community and there's such an opportunity for um, collective work and collective leadership that often um, just kind of goes, gets thrown to the wayside. And I really think that the future of leadership is not thinking about it as an individualistic pursuit. It's about thinking about it as a communal pursuit. How are we going to lead together? How are we going to be able to take up work, advocacy, activism, change, progress as a community that works for everybody versus um, individual gain? And I think that there's a lot of opportunity for that. And while there's been a lot of hardship um, in recent times for many, many people for various reasons, I think that I'm optimistic about the future, right? Working with young people, um, I do feel optimistic that we'll start to see that change going forward. And I, I really hope we do. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from getting in on these important leadership discussions. It'll also help us grow the show and continue bringing better content each time you hear from us.